For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome to Your Case is on Hold, or welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. And this is episode 15. If you can believe that, we've been, they're still letting us do this after 15 episodes, so we must be doing something right. For those who are just tuning in, I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal Bone and Joint Surgery. You don't know me, and you don't know my address. And currently broadcasting from an undisclosed remote location on, on Safari. I wish I was a Safari. <laughs> Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor of Arthroplasty, of Knee Arthroplasty, and I am currently in transit. But I will definitely work on bringing you guys a good podcast. Oh, yes. Always, always, always that. So we're covering the latest and greatest in the first issue of JBJS for August. A couple of disclaimers here for those who have been keeping track of these things. The opinions expressed here and the takes that you hear are our own and not reflective of editorial policy or the opinions of the staff or the board of trustees of JBJS. That being said, this episode is sponsored by Clinical Classroom. Uh, They are still recruiting for uh, interested parties who would like to contribute and write for Clinical Classroom. You can reach out at the uh, customer support, customer service, or at jbjs.org. Once again, we are covering articles in the August 3rd issue of 2022 JBJS. For those who have yet to do this, please uh, be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Be sure to like us, subscribe, hit the notification bell, anything that you're going to do to uh, give us some support and, and um, keep this quality material going. We uh, have a new announcement, very exciting. Your Cases on Hold is expanding, and I don't mean expanding in the way that they're knocking down the volcano on the Las Vegas Strip of the Mirage and building a new tower. This is even better than that, if you can imagine. We are now not just going to be bringing you the best in science in each issue of JBJS with that dose of pop culture and entertainment that you've come to expect. We're also going to be covering, or at least bring to your attention, the complete lineup of articles that are in each episode of JBJS or each issue of JBJS going forward in each episode of Your Cases on Hold. And so our new first section is going to be called Top of the Pile. 
And what is top of the pile? Top of the pile is like, you know, when you are first in training or maybe you're still in training or maybe you're yet to even be in training, but you're going to have that senior level faculty person who would bring you into their office and their entire desk is just piled high with like journals and articles and papers. And they have to like push it to the side to like actually find like a seat for you or, or something to that effect. And they'd be like, Antonia, it's so great to see you again. Um, <laughs> and that's the emperor from Robot Chicken, by the way. But um, evil, but hey, everyone has their own. <laughs> or Mr. Burns. No matter what, they would always have the things that they wanted to read at the top. And they could always, it was, it was like organized chaos. So that's what we're talking about here. These are not the scientific articles, but the interesting pieces that, uh, that, that make JBJS really what it is. And you're going to want to check these out. So without further ado, top of the pile, current state of platelet-rich plasma and cell-based therapies for the treatment of osteoarthritis and tendon and ligament injuries by Sue and colleagues. What's an important feature on the individualism excuse and the myth of meritocracy in orthopedics by Baird and colleagues. That's permanently free, so you can check it out at any time. Very interesting historical retrospective on the pioneering women of orthopedic surgery, a historical review. This is by Dib and colleagues, and the senior author on that paper is Antonia and my colleague and sports medicine practitioner extraordinaire, Elizabeth Matskin. And now we will enter the headlines for this issue. My headline is Outcomes After Anatomic and Reverse Shoulder Arthroplasty for the Treatment of Glenohumeral Osteoarthritis, a Propensity Score Matched Analysis. I selected this because I love propensity score matching. It's an incredibly valuable technique and one that we are seeing with increased frequency uh, in the literature, I'd say in the last like five to six years. So I thought it'd be very appropriate to discuss that using this, this article as a substrate since they were using that methodology technique as their statistical medium. This study is contrasting reverse shoulder arthroplasty with total shoulder arthroplasty. It is by Kirsch and colleagues, and it does have a commentary, so don't take my word for it. Essentially, these are two different types of shoulder arthroplasty technologies available, techniques available, and there may be a selection and indication bias when deciding on who should get a total shoulder or who should get a reverse total shoulder. There are trade-offs and risks and benefits of both, and the authors wanted to evaluate this in a way in which they could potentially control for what we would call that confounding by indication. If we harken back to one of the very earliest episodes where we talked about the analogy of research using Plato's cave, this is a study where they have retrospective data that's prone to bias, but they're going to try to elevate that. They're going to upscale it. They're going to upcycle it using the medium of propensity score matching and try to get it closer to what we would call a simulated target trial, a randomized control trial, or something to that effect. That's really what most people are trying to do when they're using propensity score matching. But there's a pitfall because the fact of the matter is, is that you can deploy any kind of statistical technique you want with 
lots of data or just a little bit of data, the, the program is agnostic to the quality of the work that you're doing. And at the end of the day, that's some of what we're seeing here. So this is uh, data collected between 2015 and 2018. All the procedures were performed by a single surgeon who's a self-described, reading it directly, high-volume fellowship-trained shoulder and elbow surgeon at a large private institution. So it's just one individual's practice. There's the potential for expertise bias uh, right there. There's also the uh, potential for clustering um, in that context, patient clustering on the level of the institution as well as the provider. So they use propensity scores, which were generated using logistic regression and incorporating age, sex, body mass index, the uh, ES score, preoperatively, uh, active forward elevation preoperatively, and a system for categorizing glenoid morphology. And they started with 263 total shoulders and 586 reverse shoulders. So clearly the preference for this surgeon is to do reverse total shoulders. And they executed the propensity score match. And then that resulted in 67 patients in each group. So they only found 67 viable matches. They used a caliper to, you know, basically say, like, we're only going to allow matches if the people are this close to each other. And the caliper was 0.2, which is the threshold. You know, they they provide some exculpatory language here around if it's 0.2 to 0.5, if the caliper is in that range, this is recommended as appropriate. 0.2 is kind of the upper limit if you're really trying to have a well-specified propensity score technique. And the, the reality is they were only able to find 67 patients that sort of intersected on that Venn diagram circle. We don't know the larger sample characteristic of the the bigger group and how those two groups compared. They just present us with the propensity score matched cohort. And if we look at that, table one does show us that in an ideal world, after the propensity score match, the cohort should be balanced, meaning no really measurable statistical difference between those groups. And that is not the case. There are some differences even post-match. So that's essentially like the equivalent of a failure of randomization. And that, that is a, uh, that's something of a problem. Plus, with only 67 patients in each cohort, they're underpowered to detect differences using standard statistical techniques in some areas. For example, their breakdown of patients who are female, it's 58 in one group versus 61 in the other. And that's just a three percentage point difference. But if you had thousands of patients, that would be significantly different. Similarly, the BMI is a little bit lower and there's a six percentage point difference uh, in whether or not there was prior ipsilateral surgery. Now, they're not too worried about that because they have p-values for this that are all uh, above the threshold for significance. But the best practice is to use standardized mean differences. And I suspect if some of these were evaluated using standardized mean differences, there might have been some differences. Even with the p-value threshold, there is a difference in terms of the duration of clinical follow-up, which is higher in the uh, total shoulder group. At the end of the day, they 
conclude that the treatment of osteoarthritis using either of these techniques resulted in similar short-term patient-reported outcomes with better post-operative range of motion after total shoulder. Then they say longer follow-up is needed to determine the ultimate value. But the intent of the study was not to determine if longer follow-up is necessary to determine ultimate value. That's not a study-specific outcome. And some of these findings can really be, uh, we talked last uh, or two times ago about artifacts in the model. And, and there really can be artifacts here, both in the selection, the surgeon knows who's going to do well with the total shoulder and they know who's going to do well with the reverse. And it doesn't, what you're trying to do here is build uh, something around the counterfactual where it's like it, either way, but you see that they could only find out of all those patients that were done, they only found 134 that it could really go either way. The majority were really, they only were qualifying for one or the other. And so um, in this more narrow group, yes, either one of these does seem to, to work out. I think you could have done this study without having to do the propensity score match. Uh, you probably could have done it with just a standard regression technique and you might've found similar outcomes and had a, a larger, retained the larger sample. In addition, we tend to use propensity score matching when a randomized controlled trial is obviated. For example, operative versus non-operative treatment for patients with spinal metastases. You're not gonna randomize someone in today's day and age to all that that has been done in the past, Patchell and colleagues in Lancet in 2005, but you're not in today's day and age, you're really not gonna randomize somebody. Um, there's not gonna be clinical equipoise with all the available treatments that we have available to say, you know, you have a neurologic deficit, we're not gonna let you have surgery, you're just gonna have non-operative treatment. Or for example, MRI versus CT alone in screening for spinal injury in trauma patients. You're not gonna like randomize someone to, uh, to, to an imaging modality that ha actually has a better chance of detecting an injury those kinds of things, you use retrospective data, you run the propensity score to really build clinical equipoise, simulate a randomized trial. With this, you could actually do a randomized trial. And I think that at the, the, the take-home message here is that if, if there are real burning questions, the situation is ripe to probably do a randomized trial in, in this regard. And that would provide a much higher level of evidence, even what a propensity score approach can do using this data. I can't fight against the methodology guy. He knows everything about it. So the only thing I can really take home about it is that, to your point, you only have so much matching. So this is one of those areas where a randomized control trial actually could make sense going forward. And I know a lot of people always say like future studies are needed or further studies are needed. In this case, I think a further study is needed because most of the studies are looking, are comparing apples to oranges, right? Patients who get total shoulders who have intact rotator cuffs and then those who get reverse total shoulders without intact rotator cuffs. And to their credit, they only included patients that had rotator calves intact. And the matching criteria was good as well, too. So it's one of those things where I think going forward, here's our area of further research is needed. Come on board, guys, and uh, do your research projects. Yeah, as far as um, this one, I would say perhaps Luke and Uncle Ben bit off a bit more than they could chew. Yeah. Duke's a hazard. Just a little, just a little, my friend. <laughs> it's how trouble happens. All right. Now it's my turn to attack something that's a topic that's of interest to me. For full disclosure, I am an author on this paper. 
So take that with a grain of salt. So I'm a little bit biased, but I'll hopefully I'll cover the upsides. And so, so we're ready for the best research study ever published <laughs> in the annals of JBGS going all the way back to 1876. Here it is, folks. Well, for the pluses, it definitely has a lot more patience than studies back in 1876. That said, <laughs> it's probably not the best one out there. So the next study I'm talking about is the influence of surgeon sex on adverse events following primary total hip arthroplasty, a register-based study of over 11,000 procedures and 200 surgeons in Swedish public hospitals by Jellbeck et al. What I liked about this is that it was a study looking at complication rates after the primary total hip arthroplasty. We had done a study looking at total joint arthroplasty uh, surgeon patients and looking if there's a difference between males and females. And that came off the tail end of a study from Canada that said that it was the difference between male and female internists in terms of patient mortality. And they found lower patient mortality or outcomes in actually female internists and said, okay, let's do this in our surgeons. We did it in all total joint arthroplasty procedures. Now, our downside is that we only use the Medicare database. Now, Medicare is good because most total joint arthroplasty patients are in Medicare, but it doesn't encompass a lot of people. So the Swedish public registry is nice because it's one hospital payer system. It has everyone included in it and everyone's in the same system. So that's why you can get up to almost 12,000 patients in a time period of 2008 and 2016. And we looked at 90-day adverse um, outcomes based on surgeon sex in 10 hospitals in the Western part of Sweden. And they defined sex as the sex of the surgeon identified at birth. And in Sweden, they actually have a number of numerical control when they're actually coding in surgeons if they're identified as male and identified female. Now there's a lot more identities. We understand that. And the study was just limited to male and female. It did not include others, which is a limitation to the study. There's no doubt about that. What's interesting, again, with these almost 12,000 procedures and 200 surgeons, 17.5% of them are women. That include both residents and attendings. If you look at just the resident number, the resident number is huge, 33.8%. And the attending number was 14.1%. What's interesting is they made a little comment that said, actually, over the last 30 years, they went from 6% overall women to this now 17.5% overall women. So we're about the six, 7% right now. So it might take us 30 years, but we can get better. We can still improve. So nothing to do with the article itself, but the number of female orthopedic surgeons can increase over time. And Sweden is actually second place to Estonia when it comes to female orthopedic surgeons, which is pretty interesting. So anyway, this is the type of study that can be done in a single pair system looking at adverse events. And they define adverse events as readmission for a predefined set of ICD-10 specific codes or death that they had previously identified as part of the registry that they had to already identify an adverse outcome. There's a whole host of adverse outcomes, ranging from medical to surgical ones as well, too. If the patient had bilateral total hip arthroplasties, stage bilateral, they only counted the first one. And if a surgeon did less than five primary total hips a year, then they also excluded them, which made sense. Now, that said, they did do separate models for the study, which I think was good to be able to identify that. So they had surgeon-level risk factors, level of training, and case volume. Now, most of those are intertwined, right? A resident is less likely to have a higher case volume and attending is likely to have a higher case volume. And then surgeon level, you know, will be based on training or years of practice. So they're intertwined, but it's good to run models in different ways to see if there are different changes. What's interesting with regards to looking at adverse outcomes, the overall volume of cases is much lower than we experienced in the United States. So for example, men had a slightly higher annual case volume. There was only 23 total hips in the past 365 days. That's not a lot. Some people do that in one week in the United States. So it's not comparing apples to oranges with regards to 
U.S. and other countries, or, or Sweden and other countries as well. Women had an average of 19 total hits in a year as well during this time. What they did notice is that male residents had a higher rate of surgical case volumes, 11 total hips in the past 365 days compared to female residents, which had six of them. So almost half the volume. So pointing out the fact that potentially female residents didn't have enough exposure to total hips and should probably get some more if possible based on just the study alone. So we can take all these results with a grain of salt with regards to generalizability, given the difference in types of case volume and exposure to doing a, a arthroplasty. That said, the adverse events for the 90 days were similar for females at 6%. And males at 7%. They adjusted for patient age, sex, Ehlers-Helsinger, comorbidity index, and annual surgeon case volumes, all these things which can affect revision rates or adverse account outcomes, and found that there's no difference between surgeon sex and adverse account outcomes, both looking at a combination of attendings and residents and attendings alone. Now, there might be slightly different, like a slightly less proportional adverse outcomes for females, but when it comes to statistical analysis, there's really no difference between the groups. And it was similar for all three of the models that they stated here. Um, some of the things that were actually interesting were that female physicians were uh, earlier in their career. And that's true here in the United States for most of the studies. And then interestingly, female surgeons tend to operate on older patients, had a higher proportion of female patients. And some female patients do seek out female patients. Similar proportions of comorbidities between male and female surgeons, which you probably expect. But female surgeons did more cemented total hips. Whether or not it's trauma-related or not, that's something to put out there. But ideally, what they're saying is that there's no difference between male and females when it came to this very specific area in Sweden, looking at primary total hips. It's definitely one of those things that would be nice to see that's done in other st- in countries, other procedures, other areas. You know, maybe not just 90-day outcomes, maybe 100-day, uh, uh, one-year outcomes and adverse events. But at least it's a start and contributes to the literature of looking at uh, gender differences between surgeons, and more so because actually patients perceive this, which is something we may not see in our orthopedics, but we see this in our patients. And this uh, this paper does come with a commentary. One thing that I was thinking about, so if, if this is like the exhaustive Swedish data, are there just 200 surgeons in Sweden that do these total hip procedures? So there's not that many surgeons in general, I think, when it comes to a smaller country. So that, that's the interesting part. And, and then, you know, this includes trauma cases as well too, right? So it does mm-hmm. encompass more people that are doing total hips in this scenario. So it does, it, it's a smaller country and so smaller numbers. Yeah. I mean, but you know, if it's exhaustive, it's exhaustive. I mean, that's the universe that you're working in is I don't know that much about um, the Swedish health system, but there may be, as there is like in England, like, like there are public hospitals and then there's private and, so there, there, it may not be necessarily every uh, total hip surgeon in, in Sweden. It's just those that are working in the, in the public health system. I say we take a trip to Sweden to find out. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Investigative research at its best. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going uh, to dive in uh, and investigate that one. Let's go for the next one. Quality field work. Roots on the ground. Uh, and then we'll get back to you. Um, in the meantime, it is time for Your Case is on Hold featurette. And if some of this research comes up in here trying to act froggy, we're definitely going to give them the anesthesia connection. Of your case this is on hold. Issues. Your Case is on Hold featurette is a prospective longitudinal study of the influence of obesity 
on total knee arthroplasty revision rate results from the Australian Orthopedic Association National Joint Replacement Registry. It is uh, by Wall and colleagues, and there is an infographic. So visual learners or those who are just interested, um, definitely uh, uh, check that out. We've uh, covered registry studies quite a bit um, in the previous 14 episodes, including uh, some uh, earlier episodes that do have additional Australian orthopedic uh, registry data in them. It's a real renaissance, the halcyon days of Australian orthopedic replacement registry, joint replacement registry research. The rates of all-cause revision and revision for infection, loosening, instability, and pain were compared in this large-scale universal exhaustive registry study for non-obese patients to class one and two obese patients, and then class three obese patients. And those are uh, individuals with BMI greater than 40. And um, they used uh, a uh, Cox proportional hazard regression, looking at cumulative percent revision as the primary outcome, adjusted for age, sex, tibial fixation type, prosthesis stability, patellar component, and whether or not navigation was used. So that's really interesting and relevant because, of course, that's gaining a lot of traction in recent years. Uh, An incredible close to 142,000 patients were included. Uh, About 11%, um, slightly under, were class 3 obese. And they... um, conducted a very straightforward analysis. I think analytically it was well done. The all-cause revision rate was 2.5% for non-obese, 2.9% for class one and two, and then 3.3% for class three. And comparing class three with non-obese, there was a 30% increase risk in the hazard at about one year following surgery. And then for the class one and two obese together versus non-obese, there was a 12% increase. And between class three and one and two, there's a predictable 18% increase. That's the difference between the 12% at the baseline and the 30% at the, at the higher level. I think that's in line with most of what we're kind of seeing in, in clinical practice when it comes two risk factors where obesity may be involved and not just in joint arthroplasty, but also in areas such as spine surgery where infections and needs for revision are are very common. Something that was interesting to some degree to my mind and a little bit cause for pause is the revision for loosening had a hazard ratio of 1.39, but the lower bound is 1.0. And if you look at the p-value, it's essentially 0.05. They've, they have a, a very helpful third digit there to show that it's slightly under. This is a very marginal finding. And, and this certainly is a little here, froggy, froggy, froggy. Then their conclusion, one of their conclusions is health services and policymakers need to address the issue of obesity at a population level. What? Like that has nothing to do with like this investigation. I, granted, it's it's a a, a a public health concern and and all that is well founded, but that's not a conclusion. That that's what we would call a non sequitur. It does not follow from the the actual scientific work that was done. So that part's a little froggy as well. 
and and that aspect of the conclusions, you know, you gotta you gotta drop that one off. I would also say, you know, what about weight reduction before surgery or risk optimization prior to surgery and the impact that that can have in terms of, you know, it's great that they're saying patients should be counseled with regard to the increased risks so they can make informed decisions. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, that stands no matter what. And, you know, if you're telling somebody, well, you have a 30% higher hazard of, you know, needing revision within so many years and they say, okay, I don't care. I mean, they can say that. And then when they come back a year later, they're like, well, I didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> so I, I think this, this probably needs to go beyond, okay, here are some of our summative statistics in terms of understanding the risks and the modulated stepwise increase in these obesity classes. But, you know, what is the clinical application of this? I ask you, as this is your wheelhouse, what is the real clinical application from this research? I'm always excited when I read an article and I hear exactly what you're saying from your mouth. And it was what I was thinking because I'm a methodology editor. So if I'm thinking the same thing, that means that's a problem. (laughs) So I wrote in big letters, I'm like 1.0 and a p-value of 0.0047, not so significant. So the only real take-home message, and I agree with you 100%, is that infection is probably the only thing that makes a difference. Pain is a subjective reason to revise anyone. So I don't like pain as an endpoint, really, when it comes to these studies. Yes, they underwent a surgical revision, and that's morbidity, cost, the whole nine yards, but pain is very subjective. So that's a difficult one for me. Things like loosening, infection, those are much more lack of or instability. Instability can even be more subjective, but loosening and infection are much more tangible. So the only one I said as a take-home message was infection. And it goes back to what we've talked about in the beginning is preoperative patient optimization, right? Have them lose weight prior to surgery to reduce the likelihood of becoming infected. It's one of the hardest things I have with counseling because weight loss is a very touchy subject. And as a woman, I totally understand that losing weight is probably the hardest thing to do. But by doing so, I actually sit down with patients and draw an exponential curve and say, if your body mass index is over the, for whatever reason, your risk of infection exponentially increases. And in most patient minds, infection just means, well, it's like a cut. You just, you know, wash it out, squirt a little water on, you're fine. And I go, oh no, you don't understand how bad an infection can be. And you go to the whole nine yards. You go from having to wash them out, which is just the tip of the iceberg and it's a high failure rate, to two-stage exchange, which is you don't have a joint in for multiple months, even amputation. And you don't have to scare every single patient with amputation, but that is a possibility. And if that's a known possibility, just an infection means much, an infection means more than just an infection. So that's part of my taking message is not like, public health. No, you need to be able to counsel patients and have them lose weight prior to surgery, try to avoid the class three obesity and go for the class one or two obesity if coming from class three obesity. I think that's uh, very well said. And with that, we'll move into our honorable mentions. So we have total hip arthroplasty leads to better results after low energy displaced femoral neck fracture in patients aged 55 to 70 years. This is a randomized controlled multi-center trial comparing internal fixation and total hip arthroplasty. Bartles and colleagues, there is a visual summary, really well done research, so definitely check that out. We then have the development and validation of health-related quality of life measures in older children and adolescents with early onset scoliosis. This is by Matsumoto and colleagues. Exposure-related anxiety 
and improving patient satisfaction with medical undergarments during surgery. Another randomized controlled trial by Joukowsky and colleagues. This also has an infographic. Then we have the lateral ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow joint, reconsideration of anatomy in terms of connection with surrounding fiber structures by Fukai and colleagues. This is permanently free, uh, very interesting anatomic work. Diagnostic performance of advanced metal artifact reduction, MRI for periprosthetic shoulder infection by Fritz and colleagues. This one is free for 30 days. So definitely get in on that and check it out. No excuses. And then periprosthetic osteolysis as a risk factor for revision after total ankle arthroplasty, a single center experience of 250 consecutive cases by Lee and colleagues, also free for 30 days, continuing really what in the first six, seven months of the journal has been several key articles um, in the area of total ankle arthroplasty. So if you're a foot and ankle specialist, if you're doing total ankles, definitely have to read up. And from between January and now, we've had almost uh, one issue, uh, one paper every month focused in the total ankle arthroplasty space. So that is um, really interesting and and um, some some compelling practice changing research uh, throughout our honorable mentions. So the next up and coming procedure after total joint replacement that's no longer just hip and knee now. No, it's not just hip, knee, shoulder. There's elbow, wrist, ankle, cervical spine, lumbar spine, there uh, metacarpals, <laughs> there uh, you uh, CMC arthroplasty. I can keep going. I could just keep going. I, I can play it like Lionel Richie. I can do this all night long. <laughs> well, that uh, brings us to the end of this episode. We really appreciate uh, your uh, attention and interest, and uh, stay tuned for. August 17th when we'll, or August 16th, where we'll be covering the August 17th episode with a new issue of Your Cases on Hold. And uh, with that, have a great rest of your summer. Safe travels. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.